Our reading today is from Genesis 1, and I'm going to start at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So, Heavenly Father, as we start this series now on worshipping our warming world, this is just such a a big theme, and we ask for your peace, for your power, for your presence, as we just come to your word now, in the light of all, all that we're, we're living through. Amen. So with every year that, that goes by, the reality of the climate crisis becomes more apparent. Even if we were to switch off our televisions and we were to shut down our computers, we would still be aware of the changes to the climate just here in in the UK, quite apart from the increased floodings in uh, uh, in the past 10 years. On the 9th of July last year, we saw temperatures rise above 40 degrees, the first time since records began, and the fire service had its busiest day since World War II as the extreme temperatures caused fires to break out in dozens of locations. And we know that extreme weather events are happening all over the globe, floods and famines, droughts, hurricanes, forest fires, not to mention the the rising sea levels due to the melting of the ice caps. So the effects of our warming world no longer lie in the distant future, but rather they are with us now. What we could once write off as freak weather events have become frequent weather events, as the predictions of the scientists from decades ago uh, come to pass. But we don't find the climate crisis easy to talk about, even in churches and especially from the pulpit. I think as, as, as preachers that will come over as, as ill-informed, I don't know enough about the science. 
We don't want to cause division in our congregation. Not everybody agrees about the science. I really don't want to ruin your Sunday. You came here this morning for, to be cheered up and encouraged, um, not, not to be depressed. And there's also a personal reckoning for the preacher when you feel you haven't actually made enough changes in your own life towards sustainable living. So how can you stand up and preach to, uh, to, uh, to, to your congregation? And then the, the theological questions the climate crisis raises is a real test of faith. Do I really believe that God has it all under control when the climate seems to be so out of control? Do I really believe in a God who is both all-loving and all-powerful, and yet the crisis seems to worsen? In some ways, this is nothing new. Christians have always struggled to hold in tension the belief that God is both almighty and all-loving in the face of flood, famine, genocide, and natural disasters. But, but a climate crisis that threatens the viability of human survival on the planet, well, not just humans, seems to raise this to new levels. And then there's the fear that to preach on the climate crisis is not what churches should be doing. When the COP26 talks were held in Glasgow in the autumn of 2021, one church put up a banner saying uh, this, the world's most urgent need is churches preaching Christ crucified, not climate change. And in the media, when, when the minister of the church defended this uh, statement, he explained that the church's priority must be to save people from their sins for eternal life and not to be distracted by trying to save the planet, which will not go on forever anyway. But I'll come back to that in a bit. So even if for all these reasons, I do feel a tiny bit vulnerable as we launch into these next four weeks, I think it's important that we do. This week, addressing the French Senate, King Charles said this, we must strive together to protect the world from our most existential challenge of all, that of global warming, climate change, and the catastrophic destruction of nature. So with our Bibles open before us, how can we not talk about what is the biggest environmental, moral, and spiritual issue of our time? And I, I just want to say that I'm grateful to Katie Roberts for sharing these talks with me. We're doing two Sundays each. Katie has such a passion for creation care for justice and for God's word. And she's a person of hope. So my prayer is that all of us will come away from this series with that quiet confidence that comes from a faith in God's goodness amidst even the fiercest storms. So let's turn to our reading in uh, Genesis chapter one, as we ask the question, what was God's intention for humankind in relation to the earth? What did he intend our place in creation to be? So in uh, Genesis 1, 26 to uh, 31, we read how God, having created the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, water and sky, the creatures of the sea and every living creature, then turns his attention to humankind. 
Now, as with the animals, they too are created on the sixth day. So we're part of creation, not kind of exceptional as it were. But in verse 26, God attributes to humankind two privileges exclusive to them. The first is that they are made in God's image. And the second is that they're to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And in verses 27 to 29, these privileges are repeated. That they're to fill the earth and subdue it. And again, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in a very real sense, God creates us as humankind to be his representatives or his co-workers tasked with managing his creation well. But what was having dominion and ruling over meant to look like? Well, the Hebrew word for rule is rada, R-A-D-A-H. And its plain meaning is pretty much as we've translated it to reign or to have dominion over something or someone. But but theologians are clear this was not meant to be a green light for humanity to do what it liked. When we take these verses in, in, in the context of the whole sweep of Scripture, this dominion or this rule was always to be one of care, care and service, care exercised on behalf of God and with accountability to God. So if you think of a parent with their child, the parent rules over their child, but it's to be a rule of respect for the child's intrinsic value. It's to nurture, it's to bring out the best in the child. It's not, the child is not there to be exploited for the parent's selfish desires. And if you think about it, for millennia, Really, up until only a few hundred years ago, mankind's use of the land was essentially limited to hunting and farming. Yes, animals were were used to assist them on the land, and they raised livestock to provide food and clothing. But with the awareness that if they looked after nature, then nature would look after them. So ruling or having dominion was always accompanied by a respect for the land and a respect for nature. And and to be made in God's image, what does that mean? Well, most theologians would say that unlike other living creatures, God's given us an intelligence, an awareness, and a degree of moral sense that equips us to collaborate with God to care for the earth. And this is often referred to as stewardship. I think this Summary of Stewardship is a helpful one, written by the Church of England in 1991. It says, We all share and depend on the same world with its finite and often non-renewable resources. Christians believe that this world belongs to God by creation, redemption and sustenance, and that he has entrusted it to humankind made in his image and responsible to him. We are in the position of stewards, tenants, curators, trustees or guardians, whether or not we acknowledge this responsibility. Stewardship implies caring management, not selfish exploitation. It involves a concern for both present and future, as well as self, 
and a recognition that the world we manage has an interest in its own survival and well-being, independent of its value to us. Good stewardship requires justice, truthfulness, sensitivity, and compassion. So the human kingdom, the animal kingdom, and the plant kingdom are all to share the same world. And this world belongs to God. And from the beginning, our role was to be one of management, careful management, not selfish exploitation. Now, I want to turn briefly to a verse in Genesis 2.5 that I'd never really thought about before. Um, And it also helps us to understand our role in creation. And it says this, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent the rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. And there was no one to work the ground. Have you ever asked yourself, what is a garden? A garden is simply the wilderness of nature where humans have intervened. And what is a gardener or a farmer for that matter? Well, it's someone who collaborates with nature to make out of it what it would not make out of itself. It may seem completely obvious, but I'd never really thought about that before. So fields of crops, landscape gardens, irrigated valleys, plants and bushes arranged in flower beds, planted orchards, forests, hedgerows. All these are examples of nature enhanced by humans. So we could say that planet Earth could exist perfectly happily without humans, but when we collaborate with nature as God intended, we bring something out of the Earth that wouldn't otherwise be there were we not here. There's the story of a man who moved into a village and created a fantastic garden at the back of his house. And when the local vicar came round to admire it, he said to the man, what a beautiful garden you and God have produced together. God, said the man, don't give him any credit. You should have seen what it was like when it was just left to him. But before we leave the theme of gardens, it's worth reminding ourselves that the Bible is a book of gardens. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is buried in a garden. The garden in Revelation 22 where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And in John's gospel on that first Easter morning, when Mary arrives at the tomb, who does she mistake Jesus for? A gardener. And just a quick thank you at this point to all of you here at Coth that look after our flower beds. You do an amazing job. Thank you. So our place in creation is to be gardeners or farmers tasked with caring for and enhancing nature. So what's gone wrong? Are you still with me, by the way? Good, okay. Well, tragically, that same ability God's given us to enhance nature can also destroy nature. And things changed radically around 200 years ago when coal, oil, and gas were discovered and mined on an industrial scale, revolutionizing not only the way we live, but our whole relationship to the earth. And now, for the first time, the earth needs protecting from us, the very species that were tasked to care for it. And as we look at the past few hundred years, I think there are four fundamental mistakes we've made. And the first is that 
We came to believe that we were above creation and not just part of creation. We thought the rest of creation existed to serve us and we could do whatever we liked with it. And it's only in, in, in recent times, as more and more of the land is ravaged and, um, and, and species of animal become extinct, that we appreciate just how interlinked our ecosystem is and the extent to which it's now breaking down. The second is that the Industrial Revolution, with its technological and scientific progress, set us on a path of excess. We became used to a standard and quality of life with its comforts and conveniences that we just can't imagine being without now. And yet we still struggle to accept that the resources to sustain this way of life are finite. And of course, as medicine has advanced, so more people can be kept alive, and so the world population has grown. When I was born, there were three billion on the planet. Now it's almost eight billion. Thirdly, and linked to this, is our inability to face an inconvenient truth. It was 173 years ago in 1850 when Eunice Newton Foote, a female scientist in New Jersey, first warned the world that an atmosphere heavy with carbon dioxide would send temperatures soaring. Since then, her initial findings have been confirmed time and time again, and for the past 80 years, alarm bells have been sounding loud and clear, but we don't want to hear what we don't want to know. And fourthly, and perhaps on a more profound level, and in keeping with the Tower of Babel, just a few verses on in Genesis, our human aspiration to replace God rather than partner with him. Richard Borkham puts it like this. By the project of total control, modern humans have sought the means of making themselves gods, subject to none, supreme over all. Christians have been surprisingly slow to appreciate the connection between the modern world's rejection of God and the ecologically disastrous modern project of technological conquest of nature. So all this leads us to where we are today, desperately working out how to cut our emissions as fast as we can. Some believe that we've already passed the tipping point and there's no way back. Others believe there is still time, particularly if governments can hold to their pledges to cut carbon emissions and not roll them back in the face of political expediency. And we know that the growing awareness of what is happening across the globe is a huge thing for us to take on mentally and emotionally, as Rosie said at the start of the service. And climate anxiety is something many are having to learn to live with. And in my next talk in a couple of weeks, I, I want to say a few words about why I believe God has given us as Christians resources that can really help us to, to face what may come with endurance and hope. But two things just to mention at this point. The first is the movie that uh, Rosie mentioned earlier by Van Artus Petron. Legacy, an amazing film. Do watch it. Catch it on Amazon Prime. It is well, well worth watching. And it just confronts us with the reality, but, but with hope. And the second is this book, Bible and Ecology by Richard 
Borkham. If you want to get some kind of theological grasp about what's happening to our world, then this takes you through scripture in a really helpful way and also with hope, and it's well, well worth reading. But now, to bring things to a close, we're going to spend a few moments on on a scripture that I believe shines an extraordinary ray of light into the darkness and sets the whole climate crisis in a context of ultimate hope. And we find it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. I don't know how well you know this passage. Some scholars think it it might be an ancient hymn that Paul inserted into his letter to, to the Colossian church. Others think Paul wrote it himself. Either way, it gives an amazing wide-angle view of the cosmic crucified Christ who is the Lord over all creation. And note, as we read this, the constant reference to all things and then later to in him, all things in him. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Already five references to all things or all creation. And then it goes on. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in him he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Now, I want you to stick with me, okay? I know I've been talking for a while, but this is so, so important and so, so helpful. The first part of this poem is about the Jesus of creation, through whom everything has come into being, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the human kingdom, and everything else in heaven and on earth, including the thrones and powers. Jesus is Lord of it all, not just of humanity, but of all creation. Then the second part of the poem is about the Jesus of reconciliation, the same Jesus, but now mending in creation what was broken, restoring what was damaged, healing what is wounded, and bringing peace where there is enmity. And he does this through his blood shed on the cross. So the implication here is that Jesus' death and resurrection is not just to reconcile sinful humankind with God the Father. But it's more than that. There's a whole creation slash cosmic dimension to Jesus' death and resurrection, as the Jesus of creation becomes the Jesus of recreation. The Christ of this heaven and earth becomes the Christ of the renewed heaven and earth. Are you with me, or do you want me to go through all of that again? Good. Okay, I just think it's so important that we see the cross in this light. So when I look at the climate crisis and the sober predictions of all that it will mean for humanity, I think, yes, 
This may well come to pass. God does tend to allow humanity to live through the consequences of its actions. We know that from history. But whatever happens, a renewal of creation is promised. And that too will come to pass. Because as verse 20 suggests, the scope of the cross encompasses not just humanity, but the whole of creation. And that's why, going back to the banner on the church in Glasgow, I think we can preach the climate because the climate takes us back to Christ crucified. But in a different way, maybe our thinking about the cross is this, and this is a good cross, dying for the sin of humanity. But maybe this verse is taking us to a cross that is this size, It's a God that encompasses the whole of creation. Jesus' death and resurrection has these kind of dimensions. What will a renewed heaven and earth look like? I am bringing things to a close. It's okay. I have no idea. But if you had asked me just a few days before I was born, what did I imagine the world I was about to be born into to be like? I wouldn't have had any idea of that either. But that didn't mean it didn't exist and it didn't stop me being born into it. But in the meantime, motivated by this extraordinary hope that the word of God gives us, we are called to do all we can to work with every, everyone we can to work as sustainably as we can, leaving as light a carbon footprint as we can Because every little bit is us joining in with that recreation of the heavens and the earth. And in the coming weeks, we'll be thinking a little bit more about all that we can do on our own and uh, together. But we'll stop there. So let's just be still for a moment and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts.